I am a very, actually, I'm a very timid, uh, fearful person. And I have a severe lack of confidence, which anybody who really knows me would believe me, but, but that's about three or four people. <laughs> hmm. um, most people think of me as being very strong and very confident and very sure, and I'm not at all. But I, I really believe that anything that you are afraid of or gives you anxiety, you have a choice. You can either run away from it or towards it. And so, so many times I have made the choice to run towards it as opposed to away from it, because I think once you turn around and start to run away, uh, there's no stopping. Welcome to Practical Horseman's podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Sandra Olenek, and this week's episode is with respected rider, trainer, and judge, Jeff Teal. Based in Wellington, Florida, Jeff has been involved in the horse industry for more than 40 years. He started out at age eight fox hunting in upstate New York, learning from Mike Kelly and Gordon Wright. As a young professional, Jeff worked for the Jacobs family, initially running their stable and overseeing their fox hunting passion from 1974 to 1984. As patriarch Jeremy Jacobs' interest in competing grew, so did Jeff's role. In the show ring, he helped the family earn many accolades. Mr. Jacobs won many amateur owner championships at top shows, Son Louis earned top ribbons in the equitation finals and became the first American Grand Prix Association Rookie of the Year, and daughter Katie won much in the Hunter Divisions too. After that, Jeff and Missy Clark joined forces with Randy Roy to set up what was the beginning of Clark's North Run Competition Stable. Jeff then worked with Kip Rosenthal at a benchmark farm in Stamford, Connecticut. During this time, the four trainers worked together and helped each other out at horse shows. Also in this period, Jeff trained Laura Bowden to the 1991 AHSA National Hunter Seat Medal Final win. Jeff then started his own training and showing business, Montoga Inc., and began working with rider and trainer Lyman T. Whitehead. Jeff eventually moved to Wellington, Florida, and continued to run his thriving business, training students to accolades at top shows across the country, including Lake Placid, the Hampton Classic, the Winter Equestrian Festival, the Capital Challenge, the Devon Horse Show, and the National Horse Show. He currently runs a riding, showing, and boarding operation, training young riders and adults with Charlie Moorcroft. Jeff earned his U.S. Equestrian Federation R-rated judging license and has judged prestigious competitions such as the Pessoa USEF National Hunter Seat Medal Finals, several ASPCA McLean National Championship Regional Finals, the Washington International Horse Show Equitation Finals, the USEF Pony Finals, and the New England Equitation Championships, to name a few. Well known for his participation in governance of the sport, Jeff has also served as the Vice President of the U.S. Hunter Jumper Association, the President of the American Hunter Jumper Foundation, and on the Board of Directors for the USHJA, the AHJF, the USHJA Foundation, and the USEF. Currently, he serves as chairman of the CP National Horse Show's McClay Equitation Committee. He authored the book, 
Jeff Teal on hunters, jumpers, and equitation, and contributes as a writer to many publications, including Practical Horsemen. Whenever I've, whenever I've approached Jeff to work on a training article, video shoot, or even judging our latest virtual horse show, he has always said yes, for which I'm very grateful. In this episode, Jeff and I talk about how his early years of riding out in the country gave him a solid riding and training foundation, how he pushed himself and was encouraged by others to try a variety of jobs in the horse industry, and his training philosophy of simplicity, basics, discipline, and habit. He also shares his system for teaching his students how to see a distance, which was the basis for his most recent Practical Horseman article, which you can find at practicalhorsemanmag.com. We also discuss his thoughts on safe sport and the future of the sport. Before getting into the episode, I want to thank the sponsor of this week's podcast, Perfect Products. Every trainer has had a horse that is training averse, making it difficult to get through to him and move his schooling along. Perfect Harmony EQ is a liquid top dress daily formula that can help. Perfect Harmony EQ was designed by the makers of Perfect Prep to allow your horse to leave his stall focused and ready to work. This fast-acting, show-safe feed dressing reliably relaxes stallions, geldings, and mares and can help you bring a more compliant horse to your training program every day. Praised by 10-time Olympian Ian Miller, Perfect Harmony EQ can help you create a more cooperative partner who concentrates on his job. Call 877-324-8002 or visit www perfectproductseq.com to learn more. Available at retailers nationwide. Now, let's jump right into our conversation with Jeff, where he talks about how he became interested in horses and competing. I grew up in a horse town, but it was a fox hunting town. My sister, rode; she was two years older than I was, and we both always wanted to ride at that point you weren't actually allowed to ride until you're eight years old which is probably in my opinion a good thing um and so i was lucky enough to start taking riding lessons from a nice lady named mike kelly who uh taught cross-country riding basically and fox hunting and she also worked very closely with gordon wright at that point gordon had sort of gone away from the horse show scene and gotten into fox hunting so Mike and Gordon together put together sort of a systematic approach to teaching people how to ride horses to hounds. And that was my upbringing. And I didn't actually go to a horse show until I was about 16. And Mike Kelly's daughter, Nancy, was more interested in showing than her mother. So she sort of helped me on a casual basis. And then we went from there. You said you were not allowed to ride until you were eight years old? In the olden days, they didn't think we were old enough. And I think that they were... There was some, um, I think there was some good in that. Uh, but also, again, it was such a different time. And back then, when I grew up riding, we didn't have, not only didn't we have an indoor ring, we didn't have a ring. <laughs> so everything that we did was on horses, cross country, out through the fields or out through the snow or, you know, uphill and down dale and whatever. So, um, you know, they couldn't do it with teeny tiny little kids. Mm. So. And is that, and when you say they, was that the fox hunting group that you were around? or? Yeah, it just was, uh, yes. I, in other words, uh, again, I started with a, in a fox hunting stable. Okay. 
and they started all the people there riding on lead line. Uh, Mike Kelly would ride one horse and you would ride the school horse next to her and she had you on the lead line. And right from the first lesson, you would head out the driveway and down the road and through hill and dale. And that's how you learned how to ride. And she kept you on the lead line, you know, depending on your age and your ability, probably between four and eight times and then gradually let you off uh, lead line and you learn to ride on your own in a group going cross country. It was an awesome experience. Now, can you talk a little bit about how you came up through the, the industry, you know, as a rider, a trainer, you're also a judge, um, just uh, how that evolved? Sure. So I did, uh, even as a kid, um, I, I had one really great advantage, I think, as a trainer of horses and a teacher because I rode cross country and because I was, you know, the neighborhood kid. My, You know, I come from a very, you know, not well-to-do family, but a family with plenty of means, but not wanting to spoil me. So I was a normal kid. You know, we had a horse that my sister and I shared and we worked and rode and did things and whatnot. So I got to my first experience as a kid, you know, when I was starting 15, 16, 17, I would get to fox hunt, whichever horse went the worst for the ladies during the week, I would get to fox hunt on Saturday. And that's where I really think that I learned how to prepare horses for kids and ladies and students, which has really stood me in great stead. It's something that I think is probably the best thing that I do is get horses ready for people. So even as a kid, that was the sort of the beginning of my professional career. Um, I didn't get paid for it, but I did it, you know, to make money or to to pay for my riding rather. Um, from there, I graduated high school uh, a half year early because my parents insisted that I do at least one semester of college. So I did my final senior year in high school during the fall. Then I did a semester of school uh, the following spring so that I could go to work. I went to work for Wayne Carroll that summer. That was in 1974, which sounds impossible, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. um, And actually, that was 1973. Uh, so I worked for Wayne through that summer and then continued with him through the fall. So that was my first job. I had ridden with Wayne for about a year as a junior rider, did the finals one time with him, and then stayed on and worked for him as a young professional. And I rode for him and did a little teaching and took care of 20 horses, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Um, and then from there, that sort of uh, petered out a little bit. And so Mike Kelly came to my rescue, and she told me about a job with a family in Buffalo that was looking for somebody to work and run their private stable and that was the Jacobs family and that was uh, in 1974 and uh, I originally went to work for them as their private trainer as a fox hunting job at that point they were basically uh, as a family had moved to the country and had a stable and wanted to fox hunt and then from there I ended up, the Jacobs became interested in showing, and Mr. Jacobs was always far more interested in it than the rest of us. That's Jerry Jacobs. So he pushed all of us, which was great. And I stayed there as a private trainer for 10 years, so 1974 through 1984, and was, you know, it was just such an 
incredible opportunity. I've also been very lucky because I've done so many different facets of the business. Um, you know, I remember being at the Detroit Horse Show uh, with the Jagas family and Otis Brown coming to me and telling me that I had to learn. He just walked into the lunch tent for some reason, sat down, said, you need to start judging. And I said, okay. So I did. So I got that started early and was lucky enough to judge the National Horse Show years ago. I think I'm still the youngest person to have done that and judged, you know, so many great horse shows and the medal finals several times. And um, I've done a lot in governance, which has been a great experience. I've done horse show management recently, which is, that's a whole new ball game. Um, so I'm very lucky to have done, there are very few things in the sport that I have not done to some degree. And I think that um, the more different things you can do, the better your understanding of the sport is you know i've been a braider i've been a truck driver i've been a groom i've you know managed horse shows i've managed national championships i've judged national championships i've won and that you know and uh, i'm just so lucky and what i've been able to experiences i've been able to have mm -hmm. what is it you know there are people who who kind of like to stay in all walks of life um stay in their comfort zone what what is it about you that sort of has always pushed you to to try try something new you know it, it's interesting because in the beginning it was people that pushed me and then over time i learned to push myself um horse show management is a great uh, example i would never have even thought about doing that and my friend louise serio called up one day and said would just out of the blue would you run the my horse shows for me and i said well i guess we've been friends long enough yeah i'll I'll try that um so but i remember um i, I have two thoughts on that one is i am a very actually i'm a very timid uh fearful person and i have a severe lack of confidence which anybody who really knows me would believe me but but that's about three or four people. <laughs> hmm. um, most people think of me as being very strong and very confident and very sure, and I'm not at all. But I, I really believe that anything that you are afraid of or gives you anxiety, you have a choice. You can either run away from it or towards it. And so, so many times I have made the choice to run towards it as opposed to away from it, because I think once you turn around, and start to run away, uh, there's no stopping. Yeah. I should also say that I had amazing parents who were very strong and very, um, very fair, but very strong and very, they had a lot of confidence in myself. I have a brother and a sister as well. Um, and they had a lot of confidence in us and, and always pushed us to, to do the best that we could. And I think, you know, good parenting is, you know, crucial to all this stuff. Mm -hmm. That's um, I like what you said about that, especially in this day or time with with COVID. I think a lot of people are feeling fearful about a lot of things, whether it's work or just being healthy. And you know, it, it might not apply exactly, but I, I just, no, it does though. I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think that you have to, you know, you have to look around and and assess what it is you're dealing with or not dealing with, and make good choices, and then go with it um you know and there are some times where it's appropriate to be cautious without question 
Um, we just basically took the summer off from showing just because of the unknown. We didn't stop writing and we didn't stop teaching and we didn't stop, you know, being interested, but it just was, you know, a risk that we were not prepared to take. But again, that was a very, you know, thoughtful, conscious choice, not a running from something type thing. Mm-hmm. How would you handle, you know, because I think part of that is you have to be either okay with, or at least able to handle failure. Um, especially in the horse world, there's a lot of failure. How, how do you kind of, um, you know, get past the fear of failure, I guess. You know, it, it's interesting because, again, it, it always comes down to one or two things that stick in your brain that make you go either this direction or that direction. But I remember one time very early on, Conrad Humfeld saying to me, all you have to do is stay on the list. And what I took that to mean, I don't know what he meant, but <laughs> what I took that to mean was, you know, just each day get up and go to work, do the best that you can. And as long as you have done the best that you can, that's as much as you can do. And there's sometimes where you just have to say, all right, I didn't, that wasn't particularly good, but that's the best that I could do. And I will figure out a way to correct that and make it better and go back out there and do it. And that's just, that's just strength and resolve and discipline more than anything else. And you can't, uh, you know, you can't spoil yourself and you can't, placate you have to just get up in the morning go to work and do the best that you can as long as you do that every day you're doing great moving moving on to you know training um how would you describe your teaching or training philosophy um i I guess i would have to say that i over the years it has become so clear to me it my whole approach is very simple very basic and build the very best habits that you can. Um, whether you're talking about how to, uh, you know, your position as a rider or how to train a horse or how to prepare for this big event or that big event, it all boils down to simplicity and basics and discipline and, and making the simplest things such habit that you can't not do them. So, and again, I've been so lucky and I get to teach a lot and do a lot of clinics and teach a lot of places around the country. And because of that, when you have a two day or a three day clinic ahead of you, after having done probably eight or 10 million of them, I'm very confident that as long as I work on just the very simplest things and I start at the beginning and I go very slowly and very methodically and very thoughtfully that I will get to the finish line that I want to get to. And because I have had a chance to, to do that in so many different situations, it's very easy for me at this point in my career to never vary from that. So that's a long way of saying basics, simplicity, good habits. Uh, I like to say in clinics that the best rider is the rider who does the simplest things the best. It's not the rider that does this fancy schmancy thing or that fancy schmancy thing it's the provider who does the simplest things the best and that's what we all have to keep track of um so over the years you've written a lot of articles for practical horsemen um one the most recent one that that we worked on was about uh your program for helping your students see a distance 
And um, you said something in that article that I really relate to. Um, and it, it was, there's a common misconception that some people are born with a great eye and others are not. In reality, all writers have the same ability to see a distance. The only difference is the degree of confidence we have in our ability. And it seems like there are a lot of amateur writers who beat themselves up if they don't see the ideal takeoff spot to a fence. Why do you think that's such a prevalent feeling among writers? You know, seeing a distance, unless you can hold it at bay, <laughs> will become the most important thing in the world. And that's, that's its biggest danger. You know, everybody worries themselves to death about it, talks about it, uh, dreams about it, and so it becomes larger than life. And the reality of it to me is that, you know, as that uh, sentence that you read back to me, I still believe that. I really believe that each person really has basically the same ability to see a distance because to me it's a, def a defensive tactic rather than an offensive tactic. In other words, if, uh, uh, all right, so the analogy that I use that is completely inappropriate, but I think very clear is if I swing a baseball bat at your head or my head or Sally Joe's head down the road, we're all going to duck, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> and I'm sure that somewhere along the line, there's some you know, poor person for some reason or another that wouldn't duck. But essentially, there's an instinct in us to duck. Well, it, to me, it's exactly the same principle. When you're, if you can discipline yourself to ride forward and straight and an even pace and maintain that going to that jump, your eye, coupled with the help of a horse of any account, most horses will help you you will react to what's happening subconsciously or automatically. So the, the trick is, I don't like that word, but we'll stick with it. The, the trick is, is to understand the pieces that you can control and must control. And then they will take care of those things that you cannot control. So the opposite is if you go to the jump and you're actively looking for a distance, then unknowingly, more than likely, you're either slowing down, speeding up, going left or going right, and therefore the distance will elude you. So the very thing that you're looking for, you're creating an environment where it won't happen. Instead, you have to manage that and control that situation and control what you can control, which is pace and line. And as a result, you will see or react or feel the distance. And I think you said, you know, in the article that anxiety causes you to change your pace or line or both to pump your body, throw yourself ahead of the motion or clutch at your horse's mouth. So you're sort of, you know, when you say um, those are the things that then affect the distance, it's not even so much that you didn't see the distance. It's just you're sort of yeah it, you're you're changing it with every stride if you're going for the jump every stride if you're changing something every stride that distance is changing every stride so it isn't i guess that you're not even seeing it you're just seeing a different one every stride mm. <laughs> because you're changing all the factors around it 
you know, I have the 50% rule, which is if I can go to a jump and I can keep my pace exactly the same and I can keep my line exactly the same, I can only get to that jump a half a stride off. And most horses can make up for a half a stride. So even if you don't see it or you see it late, you're still going to be, if you've done the discipline part of it, you're going to be only a half a stride off, worst case scenario. And so it will work. And that's how you build the confidence. You have to, you have to create good jumps in order to feel like you can have good jumps. And the only way to create good jumps is to not worry about having good jumps, but instead work on the discipline aspects again, which are line and pace. And when you say most horses can make up, um, you know, if, if you're half, half a stride off, how do they do that just because they're athletic? Because they, they, if you're going to be short, they automatically shorten themselves up. They're watching also. And that's another thing that we, I think we discount what the horses are doing. And again, the, the horses that are the most difficult are the ones that are really just don't like their job and they're not helping. But most horses are also, they're not going at that jump blind, just totally dependent on whatever their rider is going to tell them. They're also watching and trying to figure out what's going to happen and adjusting a little bit to figure it out. So if you're asking them, again, if you're asking them to maintain line and pace, and you're riding forward rather than backwards, that's putting their attention on that jump, and that jump is coming up, they're going to watch and measure a little bit along with you at the very least. Some of it are better at it than others, not in their ability necessarily, but in their interest level. Um, and they will help you find the distance, and they will be there, you know, if it's, if, as I say, if you're catching it late and you have to move up, they're already sort of thinking, come on, they're, <laughs> big boy it's time to move up here a little bit or whoa that jump's coming up a little bit fast so i need to be slowing down a little bit and if that's happening at the same time you're asking them to do the same thing now you're both on the same team and the more you can again put the horse it's exactly the same thing the more you can put the horse in the same position of defense or you're saying to them you keep going this pace you keep on this line the more they're going to focus on that jump and make the adjustments that they need to do. And why is it when, when you as a rider have confidence or, you know, I guess confident riders, they don't usually make these common mistakes. Um, is that because they are just focused on what they have to do as opposed to the distance? There's a group of people <laughs> that wake up in the morning and just assume that everything will work out. <laughs> and those are very, very good riders. And then there are varying degrees of that. And some of us mere mortals get up every morning thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to have terrible rounds. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'll never find the distance. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So there are some people that are, I think, that are very bright and know that they will do it well. And there are some people that maybe are not as bright and assume they will do it well. And then there are a lot of us in the middle that have this awful self-doubt. So one trick that I have I learned a while ago was to, 
when I was really struggling with confidence. And I am a very timid, very nervous uh, rider, always have been and still am. And if anything, it's getting worse, I have to say. But when I do have those moments, what I do that helps the most is stop. And I think of somebody that I think of as a very confident rider. And then I copy them and mimic them. And then I start to sort of build on that and, and get my own confidence back. You know, the, the person that always comes to my head first is Leslie Howard. I don't think she ever went to a jump that she just didn't assume she would know exactly where she was. That was all there was to it. And she probably didn't. <laughs> I think she always knew where she was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so it's that, you know, you look at that person and then you copy them and you emulate them and you uh, imitate them. And, and then you, you start to get that skill. I did it with a kid the other day. It was funny because she was struggling. And, and I said, well, who do you think is the most confident rider? And she said, uh, Sterling. And Sterling is a kid that I had actually taught that rode with us. And I sent her on to bigger and better things. But And she was right. I mean, that kid was very confident right from the start. Even when she rode terribly, she was confident. So with this new kid, she'd be at the end gate. And I would just look at her and I would say Sterling. And she would go into the ring and bullseye and everybody's like what are you telling her <laughs> but we had this you know little code and she would just take a deep breath and change her completely change her attitude because now she was sterling instead of herself and get it done so it's a very powerful tool mm-hmm. and it's something too even if you're as you said whether it's a barn mate or you can watch videos uh, you know sure yeah oh my god there's so much out there now, in the article, um, one of the exercises that you talk about um, to sort of develop, help develop seeing a distance is invisible jumps, um, where you build a normal course with only jump standards. Um, can you talk a little bit about that exercise and how it works? Yeah, it's a great exercise, I have to say. And it's one that I use myself still, um, I mean, for myself, not just with my students. Um, the the idea really is so simple that it gets overlooked and people don't understand how powerful it is. But any time that you have an element that you're working on that involves timing, you are going to, that's going to be part of your concern. So even if it's a very low jump, a cross rail, a pole on the ground, anything, if there's an obstacle of any kind there, some part of you is going to be worrying about whether or not you are going to find that distance. And that part, whatever the degree that part is, is a piece of you that is therefore automatically not working on the discipline part around it, whether it's line, pace, position, balance, I mean, there are any number of things. So by taking everything away, now you have freed up your brain and your conscious mind. First of all, you've removed any fear. Like even I'm not afraid of an invisible jump. So <laughs> the fear factor is gone. The timing factor is gone. The, the, the mental fear of making a mistake with your timing. So now you've got nothing left to do but concentrate on the few simple things that really do matter and that ultimately do make a difference. And it's surprising in the beginning uh, you know, you start with a single jump, an invisible jump back and forth, and, you know, that seems a little bit silly. 
But when you do a whole course of it, it's quite interesting to feel how many different places you're inclined to make a change of pace or make a change of line or cut in or hang out or and and you start to feel how that relates to you're doing it uh because of of timing you know you might want to cut in because you're anxious to find that distance or you might want to hold out because you're afraid you won't find the distance so you might want to try and slow down to help find the distance and none of those things work so if you get rid of the timing element now you can really concentrate and build that habit of absolutely going at an even pace and you can do it at different paces i mean you can go 100 miles an hour to an invisible jump without any fear so you get comfortable with different paces as well and then you said that you know even with uh pace and track to do only one thing at a time so you know even when you're starting don't try to think of too many things just think of pace yes if i were to say anything pick on anything in today's world of the horse show people are saying not a few too many things are the the amount of things they're asking people to think about doing at one time is ridiculous you can i don't care who you are you can only think about one thing at a time so you might do a line and think about pace and then you might think all right well now i've got to think about uh line through this turn now i've now i've done that now on the next line i'm going to go back and i'm going to think about pace but you can only do one thing at a time and the whole trick to this is to again get the simplest ideas basic good riding and make it habit so that when you get to that last piece you don't have to worry about all this stuff it's getting it out of the way it's doing your homework i have a good uh, time for a good story about that it was very interesting i'm just going to charge right into it (laughs) the last time i did uh, judge the medal finals i had a fairly simple course. I did it with uh, Robin uh, Brown. We had a very simple course and it was, uh, there were several questions on the course, all easily answered if you took time and if you rode well with basic riding. We had a lot of good rounds, but in the end, what separated the very top from the less than very top, there was a small group of riders, I would say maybe 10 or 11, probably the ones that ended up getting ribbons, that were only feeling each stride as it happened. Their position was habit. Their line was habit. Their pace was habit. Their turns were habit. All of it was habit. And there was a the next group who did the course well, but you could tell that they were thinking about this and trying to do that and worrying about this. And that's what separated them. And that was a very, and at the end of the day, I did not, I wish I could say I was smart enough that that's exactly what I set out to do. It wasn't, it was just dumb luck. But it was very interesting to see that what actually separated the the top, top, and it was good habits. And I think that that's critical. Well, and it's also inspiring because anyone can establish, I would think just about anyone can establish good habits. Yeah. You know, and it goes to the horses too. I've always said whoever has the best horse wins the most. But whoever has the best trained horse can also beat that horse. You know, so same thing. If you give your horse good training and good habits, the better you do your homework, the better your odds are of of having success. You know, and the one thing the the I, and I hope this happens. I, I'm 
I'm losing a little faith, but the, if there was a good piece from this pandemic, it, I'm hoping that it was that people did stay at home and understand again how important home is. And it isn't just about horse showing, you know, every week and rolling the dice and just going in another class until finally you get it right. I mean, there is some, some work to this and some training to this. And you talked um, just a little bit about the horses and training the horses. Um, you said in the article that it, it helps nervous horses or green horses, this, this exercise of invisible jumps. How, how does it help those horses? Um, I think it helps the hot horse that wants to rush because all of a sudden they come off the turn, they look up and there's nothing to rush to. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think uh, same thing with a, a spooky horse that wants to come off the turn and is really looking for something, some sort of a trap. They're, you're presenting them each time off of each turn, something that they can do easily. Um, and I think it gets them. Uh, the other thing is, too, you can really get them rideable because there isn't that moment where you have to let go or allow for that jump to happen, if that makes sense, you know? So you can regulate, basically you can regulate every single stride because there there aren't any strides that are airborne. Now, you know, the very best riders can regulate the flight stride as well as the other strides. But again, for us mortals, it just gives us a place to practice getting the horse more rideable without the jumps becoming interruptions or issues. And and backing up a little bit, just so people um, know with the invisible jumps, you say you start with sort of one set of standards or do you build, have them set the entire course or is, how do you, how do you introduce this with your students? You know, probably at home, I would have a single jump that I could do both directions and I would have a line of jumps. And that I would have, and and I actually build, and I, I'm such a weirdo, but I build the entire jump, and then I dismantle the entire jump because I may want to, depending on which direction the the lesson's going, I may want to reintroduce a part of the jump. You know, I um, so I as I said, I build the whole jump. They see the jump, they come out to the ring. There's of course a jump set, and then I take jumps away, and then we do what we're going to do. Now, if I really feel like I'm, they've made progress with it and they get it, I might build the whole course, dissemble the entire course. At that point, they would arrive and the, they would be all invisible jumps. And then gradually put in a jump here or a jump there. Like I might do the single jump as a jump and then the first line is two invisible jumps. And then I might have an invisible jump to an actual jump, or I might have an actual jump to an invisible jump. And I start to mix it up a little bit so that they, they feel, wow, you know what? I understand now if there isn't a jump there, I ride this way. But the minute there is a jump, I do change my ride and I ride this way. And that's what I have to manage and control. So it gives them a chance to feel the difference and it still leaves because some of them are invisible jumps still still gives them the opportunity to practice the skills that they want for the visible jumps. Hmm. Fascinating. So it's, it really gives them a a view right then and there of how they're doing, how just a jump itself changes, changes what they're doing. Yeah. And it's, you know, I'll have a, you can do it at a horse show too. Very simply. You can in the schooling area, you know, you're, 
you're four out, your rider is panicking, and they're now they're starting to push and pull and change their pace and cut the turn, and you can just stop, and you take the jump out. You have them go back and forth. They're like, ah, oh, okay, I remember that because teaching riding is about giving riders a feel, something for them to a feel for them to look for, not a thought to have but a feel to be looking for. So if you've done your homework at home and they can ride the invisible jump exactly the way you want, and then they've learned how to do that same ride to a jump and you're at the horse show and it starts to fall apart, you just take out the innards or the guts, I call it, (laughs) and go back and forth a couple of times over the invisible jump and they remember the feeling. It isn't a thought, it's a feeling. And they take a deep breath. Now you put the jump back in and now you're four out. And this is where you have to have confidence and not panic and say, listen, four four outs, plenty of time. You do a couple of invisible jumps. They feel better about themselves. You put it back in. They jump one. You're on deck. You review your course. Away you go. And it works. Fascinating. If you're really in a pinch, you can just canter by the jump and they get the feeling back. So, again, it's, it's learning the feeling at home using in a brief warm-up warm up some way to sort of review and, and give you that feeling again so you know what it is you're looking, searching for. And then when they have the feel, boom, off you go. What I like about what you said too is, you know, for people who maybe at home don't have a lot of jump material, it, it is as simple as, you know, one jump, maybe a single jump on one side and a line on the other side. You don't need you don't even necessarily need to build an entire course. No. I, I, in my life, I require, in a perfect world, three jumps. But I could get by with three poles. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest of it is fluff. And, and again, people, people, again, don't realize that. They're always looking, um, they're looking to the complicated for the answers. You know, I like... Uh, I work in a public facility. They make me have flower boxes. I prefer not to have flower boxes. And the reason I do is because I want to have something new and different at the horse show to inspire my horses to give that little bit extra and be a little bit more brilliant. You know, in this day and age, they're all, they want exactly the same course at home. They want exactly the same jumps at home. They want to just do it and do it and do it. And the artistry to this is to, uh, it's an exercise system of learning. You have to understand what it is you're trying to learn. Then you have to come up with an exercise that will help you to learn it and get that feeling and understand and be able to replicate that feeling. And then you go to the horse show and you have your test. But again, it's a, it's a lost art. And the, the idea is to do the absolute least amount possible to get somewhere, not the most. And that's, that's the difficulty and that's the interesting part that's what keeps you know that's why i still do it because it's interesting to see if you can do in two jumps what yesterday took three jumps you know in the article the second exercise um is a little bit we've talked about it but you know riding a five stride invisible line and you say it helps you get in the habit of riding forward to be straight um that many people who think they're doing this riding forward to be straight or actually riding backward by pulling on the reins. Um, can you, I guess, walk us through, you know, if you're, you're riding, a, say a five stride invisible line, um, 
what you're doing that you're, you know, having to come forward out of the turn or off the turn and, and a little bit too, how riding forward helps keep your horse straight. You know, this is interesting. This is one actually an exercise that I thought of it's probably one of the few things that I didn't just steal from somebody smarter than me, <laughs> but I had a lady who in an effort to be straight, she always rode backwards and she never could do it. And I, I figured out that it was part of it was the timing issue. So I did the invisible jump thing with her, which helped quite a bit because she got much more comfortable about going forward when she didn't have to time anything. But then I thought, well, there's got to be a way to incorporate some idea of making a smooth curve off the end of the ring on a forward stride and become much more accurate with your pace and, and riding forward. And that's when I thought of the shoot idea. So I start with the two invisible jumps are the same. And then I build a shoot with two rails. The rails now go perpendicular to the way the jump would go. So you're actually riding in between them. And I start with them fairly wide. If it's a 12 foot jump, I, you know, it's about a 12 or 10 foot space where they gallop through. And as they get comfortable, I got where I made that more and more narrow until it got to about, you know, four feet or five feet, but, you know, just wide enough for the horse to fit. And I did it the same. I would start with a single jump, like on the quarter line, and just got comfortable galloping forward to get straight. And, and I mean, by the end, we're flying, you know, and that's how I teach forward is to go as fast as you possibly can. And they learned they could do that and be accurate with their line. And then they learned that, in fact, you know, if you think about it, it's like driving a car. The more you go forward, the straighter the horse is going to go anyway. Straightness to me is 90% about forward anyway. And then you just touch up the last two pieces. So um, basically just a single jump back and forth. But the jump isn't really a jump. It's an invisible jump. But it's more than an invisible jump because it's a shoot that I gradually make more and more narrow. And then I thought, well, gosh, why don't we do it as a line? And then they got in the habit of, on the end of the ring, looking at the second shoot and getting comfortable galloping through the first and the second shoot and then bringing it back and then doing it again. And it really has made a big difference to a lot of riders. I wish I'd thought of it 30 years ago. <laughs> right. So. 40. Yeah, so it's fascinating. So just really riding forward through the turn and, and because the jump isn't there, you don't have to worry about your distance and you just practice riding forward. Right. So you've you've done the invisible jump to get, you've removed the timing to get the confidence that you don't have to worry about timing. And now you've reintroduced accuracy, but in a different form. So mm -hmm. you're you're asking for accuracy and straightness without demanding that it's timing which is difficult and if you can get the forward and the straight then the timing part's going to work out that much better anyway right. and the shoot is what also helps with the straightness that's the purpose of the shoot yep yep exactly and, and the single jump to start and then as i say you get really comfortable with the in jump and then you'll start to look to get the whole line straight sooner if you do a line of the shoot so a, a course in my ring might look like a single jump with a shoot, and then it might be a line with jumps, and then it might be a line with nothing, and then it might be a line with one jump, a shoot, and one jump, a jump. The only thing that I don't do 
interestingly, is I don't do the shoot with jumps. I'm a big believer in not having all those poles around because I think that's a total cop out. Hmm. Um, and I don't want, so for me, it's either, it's either not a jump or it's a shoot or it's a jump. It's not a, a combination of all of them. And I won't say I would ever do that. I mean, I thought, you know, that might be something that might help somebody, but if I were going to do the shoot with a jump, I would probably do it on the backside so they had to ride forward to find it, you know, yada, yada, yada. But the point is that you have to, you know, you learn each piece and then you mix it up and you change it and you go, anything that I do at home can be jumped in either direction. So you might do, you know, if you're doing a line that's a, a shoot to a jump and then you reverse it, it might be the jump to the shoot. Which one is better? The answer is both. You know, you, you should be able to do both of them. So. Mm-hmm. A mishmash of all of it is great. Um, and then the the third exercise is jumping on a circle. Why is this the next step? So for me, the and again, it's just one of those things about riding that is completely counterintuitive. But the best way to learn about straightness ultimately is on the circle. So. While the shoot's teaching you straightness in relation to forward, because you remove the timing of the exercise, the best way to really learn about straightness and jumping is on the circle. And the reason for that is because straightness on the circle is no cut, no bulge. So if I set a jump, just a low jump, and I have enough room there that that person can do it on a circle, 30 or 40 feet is what I think of, um, then they can learn to look at the jump but concentrate just on their pace, which they've done from the all the invisible jumps. And then they can really think about their line, which is not cutting in and bulging out. And if you can get them concentrating on pace and line, the jump will become automatic. Pace and line will show them that distance. And it just starts to happen. And the minute it happens a couple of times, you stop and then turn around and go the other way. Otherwise, it'll backfire a little bit on you. Mm. But it's a great exercise. Again, if you're in a panic mode at a horse show and you can just say to your rider, let's just put this jump on a circle and make sure you're thinking about your line and your pace. And they'll start to see where they are with the jump again and then the pieces will start to fall back together. And um, the Cavaletti backing up just a little bit or riding riding on a circle um in the article, you you talk about starting off with riding. Um, you know, you set you set the standards up. Your invisible jump on the circle, but you actually ride. I think it was maybe to the inside. You ride your circle to the inside and sort of pretend you're even going through the chute, and then you go go. I shouldn't say through the chute, but you go through the standards. Is that how you like to? Yeah, I mean that's a yeah. If if a rider needs to understand how the circle should feel without the distraction of a jump or a rail, then start without, or you can do it just to the inside or just to the outside. But again, it's, it's that distraction. You have to be comfortable without distraction before you introduce the distraction and the distraction is the jump. Mm-hmm. We were talking about safe sports several months ago and you had some interesting insights and uh, could you share your thoughts on it? Yeah, uh, there are a couple of things I think that are really important about this. The first is that, A, you know, we have to 
create a safe environment for our children in our sport. I mean, there's, there's obviously no question about that. And I don't think anybody could argue about that. And I, I guess it's not limited to children, but we need to, you know, we need to constantly be creating the, the safest and best environment that we can for our participants. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Having said that, the only way that I can personally get through this stuff is to really look down the line. And so for me, what's the most important part about all this is that we, that we find these people that have problems or that are a danger or um, that have issues. We find them as early as we can before they become the icons of our sport and get them out of our sport. So we need to really focus on everything. To me, we have to focus on everything from this point on looking forward so that 10 years from now and 15 years from now, 20 years from now, we will be selecting the next group of icons from a group of people that have already passed the test and are safe, upstanding, reliable people so that we don't have the issues in the future that we're having now. This is a very difficult time. Um, and I struggle with it um, in a lot of different ways. But again, when I get struggling, for me, what's important, and just like riding, is to look forward and say, you know what? Okay, we have to, this is an issue. This is a problem. We can't have this problem. We need to get to these people as early and as efficiently and as, as completely as we possibly can so that we have a clean sport to work with and work from. The only way that I can think about it without worrying to death about it is to look forward. All right. So let's let's admit that there's an issue. Let's admit that we have to clean this up. And it's not just our sport, it's the world. But let's do it going forward. Let's start right now creating a group of professionals, you know, more than likely in our sport that are exactly the kind of people that we need to have in our sport and let them battle it out for success and let them battle it out to be the icons and the ones that go down to history and have a good group of people to select from. Mm-hmm. And we'll do that. I mean, uh, it's happening. I think it's good. Very good. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. <laughs> I really appreciate, you know, all your thoughtful comments. Um, yeah. So thank you. Yeah. No, happy to do it. That's, once you get me going, I hope I don't go too much, but I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> no, it's great. Uh, like I said, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Perfect Products, the makers of Perfect Prep. Learn more at www.perfectproductseq.com. Join us again for upcoming episodes with 2019 USCF National Equestrian of the Year, Nick Hannis, award-winning journalist Nancy Jaffer about the book Riding for the Team, and Grand Prix show jumper Mavis Spencer. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review the show. I'm Sandra Olenek, 
and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman Podcast.